We're on lesson number 142 in our books, Preparing the Passover. And the events we are going to be talking about in this lesson, and you might want to open up right now to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we will also be in Luke 22, so find those two places for now. Uh, we'll also move around somewhere else later on, but that's where we can start. But we're going to be talking about preparing the Passover, and these events occurred after 6 p.m., on Tuesday of the Lord's Passion Week. So for the Jews, since it was after sundown, it was officially Wednesday. Wednesday the 13th of Nisan, according to those who go with the Thursday crucifixion view, which I do, and now you know why, right? So at least you know the reasons for why I say he, could have, he probably was crucified on Thursday, although I'm not dogmatic about that. It was the Lord's last full pre-resurrection day with his men. It was what we are calling the day of preparation. So, so far in the Passion Week, we have Sunday the 10th of Nisan was the day of presentation when he presented himself officially to Israel as our Messiah. Monday the 11th of Nisan, and Nisan isn't a car, it's a month, a Jewish month, comparable to our March-April first month of the Jewish religious calendar. Monday the 11th was the day of demonstration because he had two uncharacteristic acts of judgment on that day. He cursed a fruitless fig tree and he cleansed a filthy temple. Then we had Tuesday the 12th of Nisan, which was the day of confrontation. The Lord not only had a lot of confrontation from his enemies, the religious rulers, but also that night after Mary anointed the Lord with her expensive spikenard perfume, there was even confrontation from his own men. So Tuesday was the day of confrontation, and now Wednesday, the 13th of Nisan, is the day of preparation. What was being prepared? The Passover sacrifice, the Passover lamb, who this Passover would be the Lord Jesus himself. And also, he sent his men out to prepare for the Passover supper. So that's our introduction. Let's begin by looking at part one of our outline, which is the rulers, the religious rulers, purchase the Passover sacrifice. And for this, I'm going to start by reading Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16. So let's look at verses 14 to 16. And if you'll notice, right before these verses was um, the uh, Mary's anointing of the Lord. And then we get into verse 14. It says, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he, meaning Judas, sought opportunity to betray him. Okay, now I want you to... Flip over. Keep your finger in Matthew 26 or a little marker, but let's also read Luke 22, verses 3 to 6. This same account is also given to us by Mark, but he says exactly what the other two say, so I'm not going to take the time to read Mark. But look at Luke 22, starting at verse 3. Serious words here. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way, that's Judas, and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him, Jesus, unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. 
And he, Judas, promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Okay, even though there are only a limited amount of things told to us in the New Testament about Judas Iscariot, there is enough there for us to draw several important conclusions, some lessons that we can learn from Judas. Number one, it is very, very possible to look just like wheat, to look just like wheat, which is the genuine thing, a true Christian, but be a tear. That's scary, isn't it? I mean, to think, all of you look like wheat to me. All your nice little clothes and your hairdos and your smiles on your faces and your hair, to me, you look like wheat. But there could be a tear among us. Only the Lord knows the heart. It is, it is very possible to look like an abiding branch on the true vine and yet be dead inside and bear no spiritual fruit. It is chillingly possible. It's so chilling that sometimes don't you find out you, you know, you're examining yourself. Make sure. If, if Judas you know, deceived everybody, we could be, the scariest part is we could be self-deceived thinking we've been born again and really haven't. But it is chillingly possible to associate with Jesus and to associate with his true sheep even for years and yet become hardened in sin and be self-deceived. Judas stands as a very serious warning to us about the evil potential of spiritual carelessness and callousness. He's a warning about wasted opportunity. If ever a, way, a life was wasted, it was the life of Judas, who had so many golden opportunities to bear much fruit for the kingdom of God. You know, so ironic that he's the one who spoke about waste, Mary wasting her perfume. And if ever anybody wasted himself, it was Judas. He's a warning about lust. He had a problem with the love of money, didn't he? A lust for, for more. And the danger of hardness of heart that is just all too possible and frequent among those who appear to be followers of Christ but are not genuinely saved. Is this a problem in our churches today? Unfortunately, absolutely. I am sure our churches are loaded with tares today. People who think they're Christian just because they walk into a Christian-labeled church. And that makes them a Christian. But they've never been born from above. They've never repented, genuinely repented of their sin, turned their back on their sin, and headed toward, toward Christ. You know, a new life. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. There should be a difference between your old life and your new life. It should be evident to you and it should be evident to others. Make sure you have been born again. Secondly, Judas also reminds us that no matter how evil and heinous a person's sin may be, the ultimate purposes of God will not be thwarted. They will not be frustrated. Even the worst act of treachery, which I have to imagine Judas's work was, I can't think of anything more treacherous than to betray, with a kiss, the Son of the living God. Can you? Even the worst act of treachery works toward the fulfillment of God's plan. It was all in God's plan, wasn't it? All of the cunning schemes of Satan and his dupes and all the schemes of man put together will never overthrow the sovereign purposes of God. And you can take comfort in that, can't you? With what's going on today in the world, 
It helps you to put your head on your pillow and go to sleep at night when you know that everything is just working together toward God's ultimate, the fulfillment of his ultimate plan, which is the redemption of man and the redemption even of this world. One day this world is going to be born again, isn't it? We're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. Third, doesn't it give you comfort to know that the Lord Jesus can empathize with the feelings of our infirmities? Doesn't it give you comfort to know that he knows what it's like to be betrayed? Have you ever been betrayed? I doubt there's a person in here who hasn't felt betrayed by a loved one or a friend. I remember I went to my aunt's wedding. At that wedding, at the reception, um, I walked into a, a room and found my boyfriend, who I dated for six years, kissing my best friend. Betrayal. Have you ever felt betrayed? I know some of you have. I mean, that's nothing compared to being betrayed by a husband, betrayed by parents, betrayed by your own children. But it gives us some comfort to know that the Lord knows how that feels. Well, those are some of the vitally important lessons we learn from Judas. What do we know about Judas? What do we know about this man? Well, it is believed that he was the only one of the 12 apostles who was not from the northern province of Israel known as Galilee. His surname, Iscariot, in Hebrew literally means man of Kerioth, K-E-R-I-O-T-H, which indicates that he was from a southern village named Kerioth, a southern village of Judea. So Judas was from Judea. And he was the only one of the 12 apostles who was from Judea. Uh, also, think about this. Many of the other men, the other apostles, knew one another before they met and followed the Lord. And this may help account for their lack of perception when it comes to Judas. They knew each other. They were all from Galilee, and they were all from basically the same little area of Galilee. Some of them were brothers, weren't they? Some of them were fishing partners. Some of them were friends. Nathaniel and Philip were friends. They knew each other. But Judas comes into the picture and starts following the Lord, and they didn't know him. You know, they hadn't maybe been boyhood friends with him. And so it was uh, easier for Judas to play the hypocrite as he worked his way into a place of trust. He became the treasurer for the group, didn't he? I wonder why they didn't pick Matthew to become the treasurer. Matthew would, had been a, a tax collector. So, you know, well, that's probably why. <laughs> that's probably exactly why. <laughs> but Matthew, we know even from the account of Matthew, he was good with numbers. But they, you know, Judas must have been, been even better, or so they thought, with numbers, because he was the treasurer. And he used that place of trust to then uh, pilfer money for himself. John 12, 6. John told us that Judas was a thief. Now, he may have deceived the others, all along, but who did he never deceive? Which is something to think about, even when the Lord Jesus appointed him to be a disciple and then picked him to be an apostle, he knew that he was a deceiver and he was a liar and that he would eventually betray him. Go figure. He knew Judas's heart from the beginning, and how do I know that? I know because the scripture tells us back in John six sixty four, it says this. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not. And right there in that context is speaking about those disciples who at one time had followed the Lord, but then turned from him and walked no more with him. You remember, initially when he had his big Galilean ministry, he had a lot of disciples. 
Well, all along, he had more than just the 12. He had women that followed him and uh, ministered to him and the disciples, and they were fellow disciples. They were women disciples. But at one time, he had a lot of disciples. But when he gave that bread of life sermon and began talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which, of course, he was speaking only spiritually, they took him to be speaking literally, physically, and, you know, this is cannibalistic, and it told us that many of his disciples turned and walked no more with him. That's the context when it says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not. They turned from him because they never really had surrendered. They never truly did believe in him. And then it goes on to say that he knew from the beginning who should betray him. He knew all along, and yet he chose him anyway. Well, we also know that Judas' father's name was Simon Iscariot. Simon was a very common name back then. Kind of like, what's a common guy's name today? Joe, John, I don't know, David. Anyway, Simon, we have Simon Peter. We have, there was another apostle named Simon the Zealot or Simon the Canaanite. There was Simon the Pharisee. There was Simon the leper. They just had dinner, the former leper, dinner at his house the night before. Um, but that's all we know about Judas's father is that his name was Simon. We are not given in the scripture the account of the call of Judas, the initial call of Judas to follow the Lord as a disciple, as we are given the call of seven of the original disciples. We're given the call of who? First of all, Andrew and Peter. Um, Andrew and John were the first two, weren't they? And then they each went and got their brother. So we have Andrew and John and uh, Peter and James. And then we have the call of... Uh, Philip and Nathaniel, and then we have the call of Levi, whose name was changed to Matthew. So we do have the call of seven disciples. We don't have the call of Judas. We don't know where he was when Jesus said, follow me. We don't know what occupation he was engaged in. We don't know the, the call. But then neither do we know the call of four of the other apostles. So that's, you know, not real unique. He's not the only one that we don't have the call for him. Like the others, we do know that he obviously left his family, uh, he left his friends, and whatever occupation he was previously engaged in, he apparently wasn't a fisherman like so many of them, and he wasn't a tax collector like Matthew had been, or we would have been told, this is where I had, maybe he was a financial planner. <laughs> but whatever he was engaged in, he left all those things in order to follow Jesus full time. He gave his time to follow Jesus. The problem was, tragically, he never gave his heart to Jesus. He gave him his time, but he never surrendered his heart. The first biblical record that we have of Judas is found in his call to be one of the twelve apostles. You know, the Lord had many disciples, as I just said, some men and some women. Out of those, he called twelve men, I don't have enough fingers, but twelve men to be apostles, sent ones, sent out in his power to proclaim the gospel message and to perform miracles, etc. The call of Judas is found, as with the other 11, in Matthew 10:4. Wherever the list of the apostles is given, sometimes the, the order is a little bit different, but Peter is always first, and who is always last? Judas. And every time his name is given, it always says, the betrayer. How would you like to bear that epitaph for all of eternity? The betrayer. He had the honored opportunity. He was called to be an apostle. So he had a golden, wonderful opportunity 
to know the Lord face to face. Can you imagine knowing Jesus face to face? We will one day. And he had the opportunity to walk with him day by day to hear and see most of what Jesus taught and did. He saw almost every miracle the Lord performed except a few when he just took his inner circle three. But other than that, he saw all the miracles, heard all the Lord's messages, some of them over and over again, because the Lord would give messages, you know, the same messages here and there and everywhere he went. And, and Judas was there. He had heard repeated firsthand warnings about the danger of sin from the greatest preacher teacher there has ever been and ever will be. He would have heard the Lord's parable of the wheat and tares, as I just talked about. He heard that parable. He would have heard the uh, parable of unjust steward, which he was. He would have heard the parable of the man who showed up at the wedding banquet. Remember this guy? He showed up at the wedding banquet that the king had for his beloved son with the wrong wedding garment out on. And therefore, he was thrust out of the wedding, out of the kingdom. He heard that message. He would have heard Jesus' teaching about the love of money is the root of all evil. He would have heard his messages about beware of greed and covetousness and his messages against pride. But Judas, like so many people today, he never, ever applied those messages to himself. He never learned their lessons. He never listened to the warnings and applied those warnings to himself. They kind of just, just like went in one ear and out the other. He, was, he just continued on in his own deceit, his self-deceit about his own heart. He initially had to have believed that Jesus was indeed the true Messiah of Israel. But his concept of the Messiah was that of a political deliverer and not a spiritual redeemer. He was likely a zealous, patriotic Jew who hated Roman oppression and hoped, as most of Israel hoped, that the Christ, when he came, would do what? Overthrow Rome and restore sovereignty to the nation of Israel. Judas could see for himself, many times over, that Christ had supernatural powers. No doubt about that. This man was amazing. He could do just about anything. He could cleanse lepers. He could give sight to the blind. He could feed 15,000, 20,000 people with just a few fish and barley loaves. This man was incredible. And there was great appeal in that power uh, to follow him, you know, in Judas's mind. But Judas, sad thing is, he was not attracted to Jesus on a spiritual level. He saw Jesus as a means toward his own selfish gain and toward his own promotion. Do people do that today? They use Jesus for their own selfish gain and their own promotion so that they can make a name for themselves and have their face on a cover and da-da-da, you know, you know what I mean. Do people do that? Oh, yes, all too frequently. Judas wasn't interested in the kingdom for, for his own salvation's sake. He wasn't even interested in the kingdom for Christ's sake. Do you long for the kingdom because of Christ's sake, not just selfishly for your own soul's sake so that you can be there and enjoy all the blessings he has prepared for us. But do you long for the day when the, like the earthly kingdom will be set up and Jesus will reign from Jerusalem as King of kings and Lord of lords and finally everyone will know who he is? For his sake, do you long for that? So he'll finally get the proper honor and glory he deserves from man. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is indeed Lord. Don't you get 
tired of people blaspheming him, blaspheming him and mocking him and all that. He didn't even look forward to, you know, for his own salvation's sake or for the Lord's sake. Um, he wasn't interested in the kingdom for these things. He willingly, yes, he did willingly leave his family and his friends and his job to follow Jesus because he eagerly anticipated a glorious future for Israel. But much more importantly, he anticipated a glorious future for himself. There's no reason to doubt that Judas did not work just as hard as any of the other disciples in the preaching and in the work of the days that followed. He probably followed the Lord for some three years, maybe a little less than that. We don't know when he was called, so we don't know when he began to follow him as a disciple, but at least two, two to three years, somewhere in there. There's no reason to believe that he did not perform miracles as the others were empowered by Jesus to do as well. Have you ever wondered, did G Judas cast out demons? Did he perform miracles? Well, we don't have any particular record of him doing that, but we do have these words in Mar um, Matthew 10, 1. It says, And when Jesus had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sicknesses and all manners of disease. So he had the power. He may have, he may have healed people. Can Satan, well, he wasn't even possessed by Satan at that time anyhow, but can, can tares, can, false, can un, unbelievers do miracles in the Lord's name? We know they can because when they stand, the unbelievers stand at the great white throne judgment, we have the record that many of them are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in the, thy name? Didn't we uh, do many miracle, mighty miracles in your name? And he says, what? Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. So we know that's possible. And so it's very likely that Judas could have cast demons out of people and performed all kinds of miracles. He had the Lord gave him the power to do that. He prob probably fervently proclaimed the message of the coming kingdom and of Jesus' messiahship to anyone who would stop long enough to listen to him. But Judas became progressively disillusioned with Jesus. We know, as I just mentioned, as early back as John chapter 6, during the time of Jesus' Galilean ministry, that Judas was all It's hard to say Judas and Jesus. <laughs> that Judas was becoming disgruntled with things. All the way back, you know, especially after the feeding of the 5,000. And remember what the large multitude of people wanted to do after they had been fed so miraculously just with those few fish and barley loaves? They wanted to take Jesus and make him their king. That was a temptation from Satan, really, because he could become king without... He could get the crown without the cross, bypass the cross. And that isn't what he came to do, was it? He came to die the first time. And so he fled from the multitude. He would not let them make him king. And that must have upset Judas. And then he made matters even worse when he started talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And in Judas's mind, it was probably no wonder that so many of those one-time disciples turned and walked no more with him. And then Jesus didn't try to stop them. He just let them go. 
He didn't run after them and say, you know, wait a minute, you guys, come back, come back. I, I was just speaking spiritual, spiritually. You know, I'm not promoting breaking Levitical law. I'm not promoting cannibalism. He didn't do anything to stop them, did he? He just turned to his 12 and said, you know, will you two leave? And that's when uh, Peter gave his wonderful statement about, you know, to whom will we go? You alone have the words of life, Lord. And Judas might have been wondering, but he didn't say anything. Then an additional disappointment for Judas must have come on, I'm skipping a lot of time between that Galilean ministry, but for time's sake, let's go all the way to Palm Sunday. He must have been very upset when, you know, all those massive Passover crowds had overwhelmingly hailed Jesus as their Messiah, the son of David and the king of Israel. But he failed to use that wonderful opportunity to then lead the multitudes in a rebellion against Roman rule there in Jerusalem. Instead, what did he do? He had wept. You know, big baby. He's crying and he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the the temple. And he kept on talking about dying. What is this guy? You know, he's just so obsessed with death. He keeps talking about dying. In fact, even late Tuesday afternoon, he had said that he would be crucified in only two more days. Another little proof for a Thursday uh, crucifixion. And that was in Matthew 26, too. So to Judas, in his mindset, things were not going well at all. Certainly not the way that he had originally anticipated. But if Judas was already disillusioned with Jesus Tuesday night in um, in uh, Simon, the former leper's house, things really came to a climax when, I mean, it was really the last straw. How dare Jesus rebuke him? for speaking about about Mary's ridiculous waste of that expensive perfume. Perfume that cost a whole year's wages. And you know, we know the Lord rebuked all of the disciples, but who do you think he was probably looking at when he said, let her alone, she had wrought a good work on me, the one who started it all, Judas. Things had just gone too far. Uh, All of his dreams, speaking of Judas, all of his dreams of wealth, power, and position were being utterly shattered. Jesus was no Messiah. I mean, he he was not matching up at all to what Judas expected out of Messiah. And uh, so he probably was thinking and rationalizing to himself that he better get what he could out of this situation while he could. I mean, he had just said he'd be crucified in two days. Time was getting short if he was going to get something out of this. And so he probably justified to himself his stealing from the money bag and even his sellout of Jesus to compensate, you see, for the lost income that he could have had doing whatever he used to do if he hadn't wasted some three years following around a lost cause, following a man who talked so much about his own impending death. Also, Judas probably hoped to find himself in good standing with the winning side. You know, if Jesus was going to be crucified in just two more days, what might that mean for the apostles? Once they grabbed Jesus and killed him, maybe they would also take his, his apostles, his disciples, and, and martyr them as well. And he wanted to make sure he was on the right side of things. You know, when the other men had said, remember... After he got word that Lazarus was dying, and he delayed a little bit, but he eventually, after four days, he said, well, 
I must go down there. And they said, no, Lord, you can't go back to that area of Jerusalem, two miles outside of Jerusalem, to Bethany, because you know the religious rulers want to kill you. And Jesus said, well, I'm going to go anyway. And so what did his disciples say? He said, well, all right, if you're so intent on going, we'll go with you and we'll die with you. If that's what you're going to do, we'll go ahead and die with you. And they meant it at that time. I mean, they, they were sincere. They may have scattered like they did at the cross, but they meant it in their hearts because they loved him. But Judas probably wasn't willing to do that. You know, if Jesus is going to be crucified, he didn't want to die. And isn't it ironic that he wanted to save his life but wound up taking his own life? Isn't it strange how all that works? But uh, he wanted to be on the right side. The religious rulers were obviously intent on killing Jesus. And Jesus himself was resigned to letting them kill him. He filled the, uh, Judas filled his heart with the lust for more instead of filling his heart with the Lord. He filled his heart with lust instead of with the Lord. He went too long without repenting of his self-ambition and his greed. And the devil was able to fill his being and to blind him and take control of his thoughts. And this is why he was able to, to justify his betrayal in his own mind. After all, you can see his wheels turning. After all, wasn't he helping the religionists of his day as well as himself? And wasn't he really benefiting all of Israel? by preventing them from following a lost cause, you know, another mistaken, self-proclaimed Messiah. Because although he did at one time really believe Jesus was the one, he was so disgruntled, so disillusioned, so disappointed, that at the end he really did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. And so people have ways of justifying their evil, don't they? Of course they do, or they wouldn't do it. They justify it to themselves. It was at this point, then, in Judas's life that we read the words in Luke 22, 3, where it says, Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being, one, being of the number of the twelve, and he went his way. You know, those last five words there, that's in the beginning of verse 4, really sum up the whole story of Judas, don't they? You could summarize his whole life in those five words. And he went his way. Sad, isn't it? When a man goes his own way, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death and destruction. He didn't go God's way. He didn't go God's way, which is Christ's way. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no woman, no young person comes to the Father but by me. That's the only way. He didn't go that way. He went his way, which was really actually the way of Satan on that broad road to destruction. Now, there has been some confusion about the entrance of Satan into Judas because there are two different, chronologically different, places in the gospel records that mention the satanic possession of Judas. We have this one right here in today's lesson, Luke 22, 3, and the second one is found over in John 13, verse 28. And in that passage, we find it's, it's the next day. We're now on Wednesday, but in John 13, it's, it's Thursday, and the Lord and his men are in the upper room, and the Lord offers Judas the sop 
We'll talk about that as we get more into the Passover. Which Judas takes from the Lord, and then we read these words in John 13, 28, and after the sop, Satan entered into him. So, Bible critics say, "Uh uh-oh, there's a contradiction. It says in Luke that Satan entered into him, you know, on the day of preparation, and John tells us that Satan entered into Judas on, on the Passover day. And, but when we consider the actual Greek, this isn't a contradiction at all. You know, anytime there's a supposed contradiction, you can guarantee that there is um, a solution to that seeming dilemma. In the first passage, the Greek verb entered. You see where it says there in Luke? I know now you're over in John. But back in Luke 22, 3, it says, then entered Satan The Greek verb for entered is given in the ingressive aorist tense. Now you all say, ah, no wonder there's no problem. I I just wonder where these English teachers come up with these words. Ingressive aorist tense? Whatever that means. Why don't they just say what it means? Here's what it literally means. Satan began to enter. Satan began to enter into Judas. You see, there were apparently two stages involved in the satanic possession of Judas, which explains why Jesus still extended grace to him the next day during the Passover supper in John 13, 26. If he was completely possessed by Satan, Judas would never have, I mean, Jesus would never have offered Judas the sop. When Judas received, excuse me, rejected the Lord's gracious offer of forgiveness and salvation, which is what the Lord was doing when he did offer him the sop, one last chance to repent, Judas, and and to accept my salvation. But Judas rejected that offer. He took the sop, but he rejected the Lord's offer. Then Satan moved into Judas. Um completely he moved into his heart completely so what we find is that here in luke 22 3 after the lord's rebuke of judas's criticism of mary's waste of her perfume you know he was criticized by jesus himself and i think part of him was angry about it. he had so much pride he wanted revenge made him mad that jesus did that and humiliated him in front of everybody um and at that point satan whispered a suggestion to Judas to which Judas yielded and that suggestion was to betray Jesus to the authorities and Judas was at that point in his life you know where he is so disappointed that things didn't go his way that he listened to the whisper of Satan he didn't have the shield of faith did he he had never truly been saved he had never surrendered to the Lord So he didn't have his shield of faith on. And he listened to that suggestion and he yielded to it. And that suggestion was what? To betray Jesus to the religious authorities. And then when Judas refused Christ's final offer of grace, as the Lord handed him that sop in John 13, then Satan did more than just whisper suggestions to Judas. He actually took up residence in Judas. I think Judas is uh, probably one of the only people in Scripture who was actually possessed by Satan himself. Now, there was a serpent back in a garden called Eden who was possessed by Satan. 
You know, that was a serpent, a snake that used to walk around. Um, he was possessed by Satan, but the only individual we have in the scripture who was also possessed by Satan, that isn't to say others weren't. Maybe Herod the Great was for a while when he slaughtered all those little Bethlehemite boys. But I also believe that there's going to be another man in the end times who will be, you know, there are many people possessed, but they're possessed by fallen spirits, unclean spirits, demons. But by Satan himself, I believe, and I know people disagree on this, but I believe the Antichrist will also be possessed by Satan himself. Maybe Hitler was, I don't know, maybe some of these other Antichrist types in the past, Joseph Stalin, maybe they were also too. I don't know. But we know Judas was, and I believe the Antichrist will also be possessed by none other than Satan himself. Well, it would have been impossible, do you know this? It would have been impossible for Satan to have control over Judas if Judas had not willingly submitted himself to him. Judas was not the victim of circumstances, and neither was he just a passive human tool used by divine providence. And whatever you do, don't believe what Hollywood tells you about Judas Iscariot. You know, they almost make him look like he was relatively a good guy, don't they, in some of the, the movies they've made? But, but he was not a good guy. He was treacherous. He was filled with Satan. Um, and he wasn't just a passive tool of, you know, God just using him. And he, he was like a puppet, had no choice in the matter. Even though Old Testament scripture predicted the betrayal of the Messiah by one of his closest associates, that is predicted in Psalm 41.9, also Psalm 55, verses 12 to 14. We also have a picture and type of it in the fact that King David was betrayed by one of his best friends, Ahithophel. But this in no way means that Judas himself was not responsible for his actions. Satan found a willing heart in Judas. So then, the big question of all time. How do we reconcile the fact that Judas's treacherous betrayal was predetermined from before the foundation of the world and prophesied in the Old Testament? How do we reconcile that fact with the fact that he acted of his own volition, his own free will? How do you reconcile divine election with free will? Ooh, now that's a biggie. We could spend a year talking about that, couldn't we? Is it a contradiction that on one hand God predetermines everything and knows everything and yet we have free human will and choice and responsibility? Is that a contradiction? No. God's plan and Judas's wicked deed of betrayal concurred perfectly. They fit together perfectly. Judas Iscariot did what he did because his heart was evil. And God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, had foreordained that his son would be betrayed and that he would die for the sins of the world. And this is exactly, look at Luke twenty-two twenty-two. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus himself tells us. He affirmed this truth in Luke twenty-two twenty-two when he said, Truly, the Son of Man goeth, as it was determined. What's that? Predetermination. It was, it was all planned in eternity past. 
the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But then look at what he says next. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Because he, he did it himself. You know, it was his own choice. Spurgeon said the following, and you're Charles Haddon Spurgeon, which is ironic that I'm going to read quote from him because he was big on divine election. You know, the God predetermined who's going to be saved and who isn't going to be saved. He was kind of big on that. They say, and he said he was, but when you actually read his writings, he gives both sides of the story. Listen to what he said. He said, uh, if I find in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another part of the scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly, in other words, my limited mind, that leads me to imagine that these two truths can ever contradict each other. They are two lines, picture this, two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them the farthest, in other words, the greatest intellectual that this world had ever had, which would probably be Adam, if he um, tried to pursue these two parallel lines to see how they could ever converge, how they could ever come together. Can two parallel lines ever come together in our minds? No. He says the one who pursues them will never discover how they converge, but he says they do converge and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God whence all truth doth spring. God wouldn't be God if we could figure out everything, right? I know that the scripture teaches both and therefore both are true. All this was predetermined and yet Judas is going to be held responsible for what he did. And I can't go any further than that because I'm incapable of going any further than that. Well, anyhow, back to Tuesday. Back to Tuesday night when uh, the Lord rebuked Judas and the others. <clears throat> Judas really felt the sting of that reprimand more apparently than the other disciples. And he resented Jesus more than he ever had. He didn't repent. He uh, didn't examine his own heart as the other man, men probably did that night. You know, when they joined in and criticized Mary, they probably went back, you know, when they went to bed, they thought, oh, that was wrong, we shouldn't have done that. And maybe they even went to the Lord and apologized because they were true believers. And they examined themselves and they repented, but Judas never did. Rather, we find out that late that night, you know, after they had their supper and Mary anointed the Lord, this was Tuesday night, and everybody then went to bed. You know, then Jesus rebuked them, and then they just went their separate ways and went to bed. Well, we find, find out that late that night, Judas slipped away quietly when he thought everyone was sleeping, and maybe everyone was sleeping, and he went in the darkness of night and walked back the two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem to present his infamous proposal of betrayal to the religious authorities. And they were meeting in the dark, in, in a private place, which they shouldn't have done. These were the official leaders of Israel, and when they had council sessions, they were to meet in the council hall in daylight. But they're meeting privately, probably in Caiaphas's home, and it's the dark of night, which shows us that they're up to no good. They were, they were plotting and planning how they would get Jesus and destroy him. And don't you know when Judas walked in, they were... It says they were glad. I'll get to that in a minute. Well, I'm going to get to it right now. That's where we are. 
Can you imagine? You know, they probably even opened their little private session in prayer, had a word of prayer, you know, that, that God would bless their plans. And then there's a knock at the door, and who walks in? One of the Lord's own disciples, one of his, you know, apostles. It was just too good to be true. And, and they probably thought this was God answering their prayers. That's how Satan works, isn't it? They probably thought this was, wow. We're told by both Mark and Luke that when he arrived on their doorstep and offered his services to betray Jesus, they were glad. And in the Greek, that's, they were overjoyed. They were very happy. They probably thought that this was God himself smiling on all their plans. Now, the joy of these chief priests and captains, we are told, shows us the depth of their wickedness. Instead of finding their happiness and their joy and their gladness in the one who could promise to save them for all of eternity, they found their joy in one who promised to betray. They were glad to receive a satanically possessed betrayer of the Son of God who promised to betray. Look at Luke 22.8. Are you uh, 22, six? You in Luke or are you in John? You're in Luke. Luke 22.6. It actually says that Judas promised, Judas promised to betray. If you take away some of those words. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them. When you think that through, just think that through in your mind. Judas was promising to be loyal to his agreement to be disloyal. He was promising to be loyal to his agreement to be disloyal. And that's the way of Satan. The ways of Satan don't make sense. They're upside down. When you look at the world and look, watch the news, isn't, don't you scratch your head and say, this doesn't make sense. This isn't logical. This is upside down. That's how Satan works. They were trusting um, the ways of Satan. You think that would be very wise to put trust in the promise of a deceitful person, a deceitful person who's promising to betray someone he promised to be faithful to? I can't even follow all of that. But But billions of people do just that every day. They trust in the promises of deceitful betrayers. They trust in all kinds of false promises. And the, the ones that they trust in that are the most damaging are the ones that promise them eternal life some false way. And, and they die, and they go into eternity forever lost. Well, I can just imagine, after all of their self-congratulatory smirks, can't you see the chief priests smirking at one another? There's Judas in there. Mm, wow, this is just too good to be true. And they're slapping one another on the backs. And, and then they began to bargain over the betrayal price. And we know that they bargained because the Greek word for communed in Luke 22, 4, where it says, and he went his way and communed with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray him, means bargained. They bartered. They were bartering and bargering, (laughs) bargaining over the price that they would pay Judas for betraying Jesus. And they finally settled on how much money? 30 pieces of silver, and we can be sure that that was a tremendous disappointment to Judas because it was not very much money. Especially, you know, he had had his mind thinking about that expensive spikenard perfume, which was a whole year's wages, and 30 pieces of silver is not many days' wages. I can't remember exactly how many, but not nearly as much as he wanted to get. Uh, it was He was very disappointed because he would have planned on getting much more. You know, he knew how much the religious rulers hated Jesus and wanted to get their hands on him 
And yet when he realized that they weren't going to go any higher, they knew they had him because, he, you know, they, they could turn it, they could blackmail him and say, you know, well, we're going to tell Jesus what you just did and we'll tell the Passover crowds and they'll get rid of you if they know you're trying to betray Jesus. So they knew they had him in a corner between a rock and a hard place. So he had to, he had to say, okay, and he agreed on that, on that money. And, um, and he, he made the bargain. The die had already been cast and he might as well gain something for his wasted years of association with Jesus. Now, according to Exodus 21:32, the price paid Judas for his betrayal of the Lord was the price of what, Terry? A slave. That's how much they would pay for a man slave back in the times of Exodus. For the mere price of a slave, Judas sold out the Son of God who had come to be his Savior. It shows that Christ was not esteemed very highly, either by the religious authorities or by Judas, right? He was not esteemed very highly. And that's exactly what Scripture said about the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, 3, it says he was despised and we esteemed him not. The money was an insult to his value. Can you put a value? I mean, could you say, well, a million dollars would be worth his value? A billion dollars? The entire debt of the United States of America? <laughs> Trillions of dollars? No, there's no value you can put on the Lord. He's without, I mean, he's just above any value. Fact is, however, lots of people, lots of people sell out for less than 30 pieces of silver. Lots of people. Esau sold out for what? Just a bowl of, I always say oatmeal. <laughs> um, some people will sell out for one night of pleasure, you know, sinful pleasure. Some people will sell out for a beer, or you name it. I mean, you could come up with a lot of things that people sell out for less than 30 pieces of silver. The low value that most people put on spiritual matters concerning Jesus Christ today is evident in the way they use their possessions and their time. You show me a person's checkbook, or you show me their calendar, what they do with their time, and I'll tell you how much value they put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people have indeed sold out for less than 30 pieces of silver. You could do a real interesting comparative study between the religious rulers and Judas on the one hand and their estimation of Christ and that widow woman who gave all she had for the Lord and Mary of Bethany who gave the best she had for the Lord. What a contrast between those groups of people. But even though Judas was surprised that the religious rulers and disappointed that they were not willing to pay him more. Guess what? It was no surprise to the Lord Jesus, none whatsoever. He knew long before this that his betrayal price would be 30 pieces of silver. And the funny thing is, if you can find humor in this, but actually Judas himself could have known ahead of time how much he would get for his betrayal of Jesus. If he had just read Zechariah 11:12. A little bit more carefully, he would have found out that some 500 years earlier, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus had spoken these very words through his prophet Zechariah. He said, so they weighed my price, for my price, 30 pieces of silver. So before he even went to bargain with the religious, he could have known how much they would give him. Have you ever wondered... 
where those 30 pieces of silver came from? Is it not possible that the betrayal money came from the temple treasury? You know, we know Judas was dipping his hand in the money bag, the Lord's money bag, and the disciples' money bag. Is it not very possible that the religious rulers were also dipping their hands in the temple treasury? Very possible. Much of the money that was given to the temple treasury was given for the purpose of purchasing sacrifices to be used on the altar in the temple. And how ironic would it be if the religious rulers' misuse of the temple offering was actually used by God himself in the best possible way, which would be to purchase the once-for-all sacrificial lamb who would die to take away the sins of the entire world. No 30 pieces of silver have ever been used more treacherously by men, and yet, at the same time, more beneficially for men. And this is just another illustration of the Genesis 50-20 principle. You remember that principle? What man intended for evil, God used for good. And the good here was to save much people. So the betrayal plan was made. Judas then promised that uh, he would seek for an opportunity to deliver Jesus to them. And he said this, in the absence of the multitude. You know, when the big crowds weren't around, he would tell them where Jesus was so they could secretly come and, and arrest him. And if anyone could do such a thing, the religious rulers knew it would be one of his own trusted men who would know all the master's private little meeting places, you know, where, where he went, and etc. So his evil deed done, accomplished, Judas then apparently slipped back that two miles to Bethany and went to bed for what little time was left of Tuesday night. And, of course, Jewish time would be Wednesday morning. And no one was the wiser in the morning about what he had done, except for Jesus. But how can you ever say that Jesus was the wiser? Can you ever say that? <laughs> one thing that Jesus can ever, God can ever be is wise, wiser, wisest. I got to thinking about that. My mind just goes in these. He can never be wiser because he's just all wise anyway. <laughs> so he was not the wiser in the morning because he knew about it all along. Matthew 26, 16, we read these words. And from that time, Judas sought opportunity to betray him. And the picture in the Greek is that of someone on the prowl. He was searching and seeking for just the right moment to let the chief priests know where and when they could get Jesus. His heart was now full of intrigue. He did not stop at unbelief. You know, a lot of people just stop at unbelief. They don't believe, and they just don't believe. Like those disciples that turned and walked no more with him after he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They just stopped at unbelief. Judas didn't stop at unbelief. You know, he could have just turned and walked away from Jesus, couldn't he? And gone home and just gone on with his life. But he didn't stop there. He willed to do evil against Christ. Knowing of Judas's plot to betray him, the Lord um, then uh, made some very careful and very secretive plans for the Passover supper. 
And he did it by way of two of his most trusted disciples, men he knew truly did love him and had surrendered to him. And those two were Peter and John. So let's look now at part two of our lesson, the disciples prepare for the Passover supper. And for this, I want to read Luke. Are you in? You are still in Luke? Luke 22. Let's look at verses 7 to 13. This is also found in Matthew and Mark, but I'm going to read Luke's account of it. Luke 22, starting at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he, Jesus, sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, what city would that be? Jerusalem. I want you guys to walk the two miles, go to Jerusalem. When you're entered in, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good man, which means the owner of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, which means they found the man carrying the pitcher of water, and they followed him, and he went into a house, and they said to the master, you know, etc. Everything they, that he had said they found, and they made ready for the Passover. Now, it's a little confusing when you read verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Uh, because originally, the two feasts of Passover and unleavened bread were distinct from one another, Right? Uh, we discussed in last week's lesson that the Passover was a one-day feast that occurred on what day? The 14th of Nisan. I don't know, you know, you can do Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. I don't care. What, whatever you decide, I'm going with Thursday. But we do know that it occurred on the 14th of Nisan. Whereas the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a seven-day feast which began on the 15th of Nisan and continued for a week till the 21st of the month. That's all given to us in Leviticus 23, verses 4 to 6. However, over the years, what had happened was that the Jews basically came to treat these two feasts as one. In order to get ready for the Passover, what would they do in their homes? They'd remove every little bit of leaven. The woman would go with a broom and she'd sweep through the house and clean the shelves and dust, make sure there wasn't any leaven in the house. And so they began to associate Passover with unleavened bread and the two you know because one is on the 14th and the next one starts on the 15th and goes for a week so they basically came to treat these two feasts as one and they would even use the names interchangeably like they'd say i'm going to jerusalem for the passover feast and they meant the whole thing or they'd say i'm going to jerusalem for the feast of unleavened bread and they meant the whole thing including the passover and that's why it sounds a little bit confusing um, here when it says the day of Passover. But the two names came to be used interchangeably to de designate the entire eight-day celebration. Now, every part of the Passover supper, and we're going to get into this more as we get into talking more and more about Passover, but every part of it was symbolic of one aspect or another of Israel's original deliverance from Egypt back in the days of Moses. Now, in your notes for this lesson, you're going to read about all the various foods that were used in the Passover celebration. For example, number one was the lamb, the lamb. Then you had the unleavened bread, you know, like a matzah, no, no leaven in it, so it was flat. 
there was the uh, corrosive paste, the bitter herbs, the cups of wine, and on and on. And we're going to be discussing all of those things in the weeks to come, so I'm not going to go over them with you right now. I think you do have a homework question about them, but it's all laid out in your notes. Um, But these were some of the things that the disciples would need to get ready for the Passover supper. So probably rather early on Wednesday morning, they came to Jesus, and now they're all still in Bethany. They had spent Tuesday night in Bethany, as they usually did every night of the Passion Week. And they're in Bethany, and they come to Jesus, knowing that he would celebrate the Passover supper, as he always did. And so they ask him uh, where they're going to have the Passover this year. You know, where, where do you want us to go and make a place ready to eat the Passover? And in response to their question, he called on two of them, Peter and John, to go into Jerusalem where they would meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now, you would think that in a city literally overflowing with people, some two to three million people, that's a lot of people in that, in that uh, city. How are they going to find one man, they don't even have a name for him, out of all those crowds, find a man carrying a pitcher of water? Not so really difficult. Why? Yeah, men, you know, real men don't eat quiche. No, they do eat quiche. (laughs) Real men did not carry pitchers of water. In your mind, what are you visualizing right now? Ruth, you know, carrying water. (laughs) You You picture a woman with a jug on her head going out to the well or carrying the pitcher this way. Women carried the water. So this liberated man... (laughs) <laughs> I said yesterday, it'd be like finding a man carrying a purse. And then I said, wait a minute. No, that probably isn't so, <laughs> not, especially if you go to Europe, that's not so unique anymore. But uh, um, th- th- he would stand out in a crowd. And obviously this, this was a servant. Okay, now I've lost my place. I'm getting silly here like I do. So you wouldn't, it would be easy to find a man carry, doing such a domestic task. And they were then, once they found him, they were to follow him. Now, I don't know if the man would know that they were following him or not. Maybe he recognized Peter and John and knew that they were coming. I don't, you know, I don't know. It seems more like they, he didn't know, but that when they saw him, they were to follow him. And when they saw him turn into a house, they were to follow him into that house. And then they were going, supposed to find the owner of that house. The good man means the owner. And they were to say to him, the master saith, unto thee, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And then the master of the house, the owner of the house, would show them an upper room, a large upper room, furnished where they could make everything ready for the evening meal. Now, because these two disciples, Peter and John, were to identify Jesus as master, what does that tell you about the good man of the house? He was likely a believer. Now, the Lord, I don't know. I don't know if the Lord had made secret pre-arrangements with this man? Uh, Or if he just omnisciently knew that in the crowd this man's servant would be out there getting water and that they could follow him to this particular believer's house and that when he said the master needs your upper room, the man would say, you know, secret believer of some kind and would say, okay, you know, uh, it's up there and it's ready for him. He can use it. Like the donkey. We don't know about that whole donkey situation. Did the Lord prearrange with the owners of the little donkey that he would ride into Jerusalem? Or did when they just said the master hath need of the donkey, that they said, okay, you can use him. We don't know these things. 
whether it was prearranged or he just knew everything, likely because he's, he is God. But we ask the question, why was there the need for all this secrecy? Why didn't the Lord just send all of the disciples on this mission? Why did he pull just Peter and John aside and give them alone the information that we have just reviewed? Why were they told to look for one unnamed man and follow him to another unnamed man before they learned where they would be celebrating the Passover supper? What do you think the reason for all this cloak of secrecy is? What, who does it have to do with? Judas, exactly. The Lord knew that Judas was prowling around, seeking an opportune time that he could turn Jesus over to the religious rulers, a time when he would not be surrounded by the massive crowds who were so fond of him. If Judas had known ahead of time where Jesus was going to celebrate the Passover supper, don't you know he would have slipped away at the first chance he had, and he would have informed the religious rulers that it's in that house in the upper room of that house and they would have arrested him early there in the upper room and an early arrest would have prevented the the uh, lord's last opportunity of intimate fellowship with his men and he needed that time with them because boy is he going to teach them a lot of you think we were in the olivet discourse for a long time wait till we get to the upper room discourse John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. 17 is actually his high priestly prayer, but we're going to be talking about the upper room discourse for quite some time, but we would have missed all of that if they had come and arrested him early. Also, an early arrest on Wednesday evening would have prevented the Lord from the opportunity to transform the Passover supper of the Old Covenant into the Lord's Supper of the New Covenant. And by the way, this is just an aside. It is believed, and I think there's probably good reason to perhaps believe this, but tradition says that the master of the house in which was located the upper room was the father of John Mark, that John Mark's parents owned that house in which Jesus celebrated the last Passover, the last supper, as we would say. You know who John Mark is? The man who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And that that was his parents. And there's, we're going to get into, as we get further into the, near the crucifixion, we're going to see another good reason maybe to believe that. That's what tradition says. So at any rate, there was much work for Peter and John to accomplish before Christ and his men could share the Passover supper that evening. According to the custom, first they would need to take their Passover lamb, which they may have kept that week at Martha's house in Bethany but they would have to take that lamb to the temple to be sacrificed tradition required that only two men could carry any given lamb to the temple otherwise as you can imagine the court of the sacrifice would have been so overcrowded with people that nobody would have been able to move the heads of the family or their servants were responsible then for killing their respective lambs while a priest would catch the blood in a bowl and then pass it up the line of the priest until it reached the altar where the blood was thrown onto the base of the altar. The priests were just extremely bloody uh, job that they had. They were butchers and they, they just got full of blood. And the lambs, then the priests had to skin and cut open the lambs and the tail, the fat, the kidneys, and the liver were set apart 
for the altar while the remainder of the lamb was wrapped up in its skin and carried home. And at home the carcass then was placed on two skewers of pomegranate. This is interesting. So that they formed a cross in the middle of the lamb. Hmm, very fascinating. And then, of course, the lamb was placed into an earthen oven and roasted. Peter and John would have been responsible for doing all of this, as well as, of course, providing the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the corrosive paste, and the wine, and so forth. It would have been a very busy day of hasty activity for the two men as they fulfilled all of these various obligations and made sure that everything was ready for the Passover feast. Now, before we close, at this point, I would like to address, address a seeming problem found in the various gospel accounts which makes it appear that the synoptic writers contradict John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each clearly tell us that the Lord and his men ate the Passover meal on the evening preceding the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Yet, according to John 18.28, we find that early the next morning, after the Lord had been arrested and taken to Pontius Pilate, the Jewish leaders would not go into the judgment hall of the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, it says lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. That's John 18:28. So the problem is this. Since the Passover was a one-day feast, how could it be that the Lord Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover supper on one evening, while the Jewish leaders had not yet eaten the Passover supper by the time of the next morning? Why did the Lord celebrate the Passover supper on the previous evening? Why did he celebrate the Passover supper on a different night from the religious rulers, and how could he have done so before the Passover lambs were to be slain? Well, notice Christ's words to his men in Luke 22:15. He said, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He did say to his men, that he desired to eat the Passover before he suffered, knowing, of course, that after he suffered, he would be dead, and he couldn't eat the Passover when the rest of Israel was eating their Passover meals. That makes sense. But then how could Peter and John have properly prepared the Passover lambs on Wednesday afternoon if the lambs were not to be killed until the following day? The answer to this dilemma may lie in the suggestion of some scholars that the Jews, by the time of Christ, had allowed for a two-day slaughtering of the lambs for such massively attended joint pilgrim feasts as Passover and unleavened bread. This would have really aided, greatly aided, in the practical situation in the temple because rather than having to process thousands of lambs, and they say, Josephus said, that there were um, two to three million people there in Jerusalem, which would, because one lamb was used for a minimum of ten people, that would be about 250,000 lambs that had to be sacrificed during a typical first century Passover. And that would have to be within a two-hour time span 
from 1 to 3 in the afternoon on just one day only, the day of Passover. And um, anyway, if they had it, if they made it two days, then that many lambs could be sacrificed over a period of four hours with a rest of 24 hours in between for the priests between the two major slaying times. So it is suggested that they had allowed for a two-day slaughtering of the lambs. You know, the day before Passover and then the day on Passover, they would slaughter the lambs between one and three on both days. And this could possibly mean, too, that there were Passover meals taking place among the people two nights in a row. Now, although the various suggestions that have been made, um, some of the other ones are very complex, the primary point that we need to understand, and I could get into some of them, but I'm not going to do that. The main thing we need to understand is, is that the seeming contradictions between the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John's Gospel can be explained. They can be explained. We don't need to doubt the Lord's wisdom and his ways. By now in our study, we should know well enough that he did everything perfectly and with great purpose. His celebration of the Passover Supper, from which he then inaugurated the Lord's Supper, and his death on Passover, were both in full accordance with the will of God, and of that we can be absolutely sure. All right, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Would you bow with me? Father, once more we we marvel at how fantastically you arrange human affairs and circumstances in order to sovereignly and amazingly provide for the precise fulfillment of your redemptive plan for mankind we do again praise you for the genesis 50:20 principle which you have seen fit in your grace and in your wisdom to institute in your dealings with mankind that you so often and so mercifully take what men intend for evil as Judas and the religious leaders did when they sold, sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver and you can turn it into good so that many people might be saved. The betrayal of Jesus by those 30 pieces of silver and the crucifixion which the religious leaders made certain happened to him brought about, as we know, the best good possible to this world, for this world, because it made it possible for all men to be saved, and in that you were glorified, magnificently glorified. So thank you, Father, for providing the Passover lamb for the redemption of our sins. Thank you for his shed blood, which when we are willing to apply it to the doorposts of our own hearts, causes the death angel to pass over us. Father, may there be no one here or within the sound of my voice who does, does what Judas did, which was go his own way, the way apart from Christ and the way of eternal damnation. Impress upon that heart who may yet be doubting you, Father, that your way, which is by faith in the death and shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, is atonement for our sins, is the only way to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is the only way to eternal life in the promised land. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to be our sacrifice. For we do pray in your blessed holy name. Amen.